That was great, and your hair was wonderful. Um, all right, all right. All right, that's enough of that. I'm, like, I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into God's word. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in our individual lives, in our lives of the church. Um, God, we come to you broken. We come to you in desperate need of, of the resurrection power of Jesus. And God, as we look in your word, we pray, God, that your spirit would lead us and would guide us as we hear your word right now, as we, as we go through this story that really teaches us so much, God. So we're thankful and we're grateful what you, for what you have ready for us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to start off this sermon, this is this is uh, this th- this morning we're taking a huge section of scripture. As you know, we go line verse by verse through the Bible. But we got to Mike. Why don't you make your way on up here? Um, we're gonna we're gonna be doing a story that really is all one big long story. And so I thought instead of spend, I'm not. There's no way I can go through all of it. I'm gonna have our our, our uh, resident Australian is going to um, go ahead and read this. We've also got the words up on the screen, so please just follow along, listen as Mike reads this, and kind of envelop yourself in the story. Go ahead. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while he was preparing it, uh, while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came to him uh, a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you, you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. 
The next day he rose and went, with, went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the Lord that he sent to Israel, as for the word he, that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appoint, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by the hev uh, from heaven by its four corners. 
and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he, saw, uh, he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Appreciate it. Ah. That was a lot. That was a lot. Well, before we talk about that a little bit, I want to let you know that recently I was provided the privilege to be able to, put, to perform uh, my civic duty by being selected to uh, potentially serve on yeah, jury duty. I, was, I went in and with all that mob of people and sat there and waited for my name to be called, and I went in, yet... I don't want to say thankfully, but due to the fact that I was, I was pretty shocked because I had an already paid for and planned vacation coming up while this trial was going to happen, uh, they just told me I was free to go. So I was, I was pretty surprised at that thankful, but I was, I was surprised. But here's what happened. One thing that really reminded me, because they show you a video in there, they talk about this a lot, but one thing that I was really reminded of during my, really my half-day experience of potentially being chosen was really how critically important an impartial jury trial is to our justice system. This whole impartiality thing, they talked about it a lot of, of being impartial. But it's interesting that later on, though, as I was thinking about all that they had talked about in there, uh, the thought struck me about the reality of how it's not always very easy to be completely impartial, is it? It's tough to be impartial because really the truth is, if you want to follow along on the little notes there I have for you to fill out, the truth is, number one, I, and this is really true, we can go into this for a long time, but we all carry in various degrees certain assumptions, biases, or even prejudices towards or against certain things or people. Now, some people I know will push back on that, but it really is true if you really get down to it. Actually, psychologists even tell us that really in order to make sense of the world, we tend to simplify our world by putting things into what they call, uh, things and people into what they call mental category buckets. Okay, we do this, um, we put them into buckets like this is good or this is bad or this is interesting or this is boring or that's threatening or that's non-threatening. We do that 
psychologically in order to have, so our world can make sense to us. I thought, I found that very interesting. Now, what this does is this obviously makes being totally impartial very difficult. Yet, as we're going to see this morning in this morning's passage, really a high level of impartiality is crucial when it comes to being a witness for Christ. It is crucial. And for even sharing the gospel. What we ultimately need is what, what, I, what we're going to see here. We're going to need a good example of someone, what it looks like to be completely impartial. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, actually, we've come to, in the book of Acts, really a pivotal time. This is really, um, a, this story introduces a pivotal and new key theme to the book of Acts and to the entire Bible story, actually. And it takes place actually in six scenes, okay? There's six scenes in what Mike just, we just read there. And since we've just read it, we're just, I'm just going to highlight uh, some of the verses as we go, okay? All right, first scene. The first scene, what we see is God sending an angel to uh, Caesarea to this man named Cornelius. Now, it tells us that he was a centurion, and centurions were, as the, as the name denotes, they were commanders of units of 100 men, okay? And we're told here in verse 2 that this is something interesting, that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continuously to God. So we're seeing that Cornelius' devotion to God, he showed that he was devoted to God by the way that he really, he led his entire family and his whole household into worshiping God and being devoted to God. He gave, he gave generously to people in need. And he continually prayed. This guy was a strong man of faith. Yet here's something very important, especially for this story. Cornelius is a Gentile. Okay, Cornelius is a non-Jew. You see, Jews saw themselves as distinguished members of God's household due to the covenant that originally established with Abraham and his descendants, Okay. Gentiles were seen, on the other side, Gentiles were seen as excluded from uh, God's, this covenant. They were considered to be foreigners. They were considered to be separate with, to be without God, separate from any anticipation that comes from the coming, the promised Messiah. Really, they were seen as without hope. That's how they saw it. The Jews saw the Gentiles. And pious Jews really considered all non-Jews or Gentiles ceremonially unclean. They thought really of themselves as completely pure. They were pure and clean and chosen people of God. Those were the Gentiles. Those were those other people. Talk about an us versus them mentality. They really had one. So so really, Cornelius being a devout man who feared God and, and held the high view of the Jewish faith, this is a big deal. And remember, he's an important and influential man as well. We're told that, and we're told now that while engaging in his regular daily prayer that he prayed at three o'clock in the afternoon, that he's visited by this angel that tells him to send some men to Joppa, which is about 31 miles away, and bring back Peter. Bring him back. He's staying with this guy we talked about last week, Simon the Tanner. So what we see is he sends his best men to go get him. Okay, that's scene one. Now, scene two now switches over to Peter. 
Okay, he's gone. Remember, see, we saw he's gone to his rooftop to pray. And while he's up there, he gets, he gets hungry. And while the, the food is being prepared for him, and while he's waiting for the food to be prepared, he falls asleep and he has this vision. I have a little picture of the vision. He has this vision. I don't know if that's what it looked like, but the closest thing at Google, I thought, probably did with it. So he has this vision of this sheet coming down and in it are all these different kinds of animals and, and these reptiles and these birds and really all these things that were in there were considered, un, considered by Jewish law to be ceremonially unclean. Okay, so this had to be a shock. He had to be going, whoa, 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 what is coming here? Backing off just a little bit. They were all ceremonially unclean. And really, this once again, this is something that underscored the separation of the Jews and the Gentiles, because Gentiles freely ate these things. No problem whatsoever. Jews would stay completely away from these things. Well, the next thing we see in verse 13, he says, and there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Now, this had to become as a shock. I mean, this request had to be such a shock to him to, I mean, to sit, what? Well, you know, this is why, and this is why he replies in the next verse. Remember, he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see, Peter's thinking, no way, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to, my obedience to God says, I cannot do this. I have to refuse, I have to refuse this. And look what happens in those next two verses, this voice, it says, and the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up once, this thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, what a, what a wild and crazy vision, this sheet coming down and all these animals being told to eat something that you you thought, this was, I'm not supposed to do that. What's going on here? And what we're going to see is that this, this is much more than about just eating and things like that. Notice that Peter's told not once, but three times. Three times. Sounds like most husbands, right? <laughs> I told you, not just once, but three times. Or your teenagers, whichever one fits your home. Or both. Um, <laughs> It says that it's okay. Go ahead and eat these things. Now, once again, this vision simply isn't about a dietary change. It's not that God is saying, I want you to change your diet. You know, you know go, to, go from being this to be an omnivore, carnivore. You know, he's not saying that here. That what this vision is doing, it's showing the arrival of a new era, of something new happening. God is about to drop a bomb on everything that the Jewish people believed about who was ultimately a part of God's family. He was, I mean, this really would have been like dropping a bomb. I couldn't think of something that was, that. think of anything that when you hear this, that something that you just like, that's truth. This is what is truth. And all of a sudden it's totally turned on you. That's what happened to these. What has separated Jews from Gentiles is now being completely removed. And here's the interesting thing about this. By using food, God is not only um, implicating how the law should be viewed now, but really what he's doing is by using food is he's showing that this carries a huge social implications. Because remember, we've seen this at times too. Remember, back in the Bible, back in those times, food and socializing were intricately, intricately intertwined. 
Very much so. In the Bible, a shared meal together is one of the primary ways relationships are established. I mean, think about it. Even in Revelation, the book of Revelation, our communion with God, with getting, being together with our brothers and sisters and coming together and enjoying one another, what's the picture that we're given of everybody coming together? We're given this picture of the marriage what? Supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So eating together is a powerful, powerful symbol. And because it does powerful, then you know what it's like. You want to get together, you want to meet with somebody, what do you do? Hey, let's go get at least what? Coffee. At least. But you know what it's like when you share a meal, especially you invite someone into your home and you share a meal, that is powerful. I mean, we, I think we take that for granted, but that is so powerful what it means to share socially, especially in someone's home, a meal. You're say, it's like you're inviting them to say, be a part of who we are. And that is what is happening here. And all, all of this, all this is happening as, as Peter's head spinning. And then we could, what this does, this brings us to the third scene. In this th scene, it starts in verse 17. We see that as Peter's mulling over this vision and what it, what it really meant, Cornelius' men all of a sudden arrive and the Spirit gives him instructions of what to do. So Peter goes down and welcomes them in, invites them um, to stay with him. Now, it's interesting that these men arrive just as Peter has had this perplexing and amazing vision. Think about what it would have been like for Peter to have, you got to put yourself in that Gentile Jew mentality now, all of a sudden these Gentiles come to his door, which just didn't happen back then. But Peter has just had this incredibly unique vision. So what's happening, what's going on here is you can see God slowly working to change Peter's biases. He doesn't quite get it totally, but he's starting to, I think he's starting to, it's tweaking him really bad. So the next day that along with a few other guys from Joppa, they head out um, with these other men, they go to Caesarea, which brings us to scene number four, which opens with Peter entering Caesarea and he comes to Cornelius's home and Cornelius is waiting there like a, like a, you ever come home and your dog is just waiting for you and you open the door and they're just going crazy. I have cats and they just ignore us when they come home. It's like, oh, you're home. You know, where's the food, you know? But no, they were excited. You can imagine he, they were excited that he was, he was going to be there. And we see that he arrives and um, expect, he's expectantly waiting. And all the relatives and close friends are there. Cornelius is like, I'm, all the people that are important to me, they're coming. They're going to be a part of this. This is going to be amazing. I want them here for this amazing moment. And interesting what happens next. Peter comes up to Cornelius, and what does Cornelius do? He falls down at Peter's feet, and he begins to worship him. Can you imagine Peter's kind of, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. Because Peter, he refuses this. He refuses to be shown such attention or reverence, and he makes it very clear to Cornelius, listen, I am a mere mortal man just like you. There's no difference, okay? I'm just like you. And he proceeds to enter his home, and he, I'm sure he walks in and goes, whoa, what are all these people doing here who are also going, tell us what's going on. We want to hear, you know, anxious for his arrival. 
we again, we see how Peter's assumptions and biases are being transformed because the fact that he even goes into Cornelius. See, we take these things for granted. We read in the Bible, yeah, he went into Cornelius. That was mind-boggling that Peter would even go in to Cornelius' home. Remember, not only to associate, but to go into a Gentile's home was to risk becoming ceremonially unclean. Peter knows this. He acknowledges it, and he also acknowledges the fact that everybody there knows it just as well. They all know it. Look what it says in verse 28. He says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me. So really, we can assume here that between his initial vision and coming, getting to Cornelius' house, can you imagine what had gone on in his, in his mind? He had really come to a place where he understood the significance of that vision. He understood what it was all about. This was way more about diet and food. This was about people. This was all about people, that there are no people that are off limits to God, and therefore none are to be off limits to him either. Next, we see, starting in verse 30, Cornelius uh, reviewing to Peter all the things that went on the past four days, beginning with how he was praying, and he had this vision, and a man telling him that his prayers have been answered because God had remembered him and remembered what he had done, and all this stuff. And, and really, Cornelius, knowing that God was responsible for them being together, I love what he tells Peter in verse 33. He says, now, Therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all you have been commanded to say to us. Can't you just sense it? Okay, now you know. <laughs> this is why you're here. Tell us what God told you to say to us. <laughs> Come on, get to it. He is, he is anxious. He knows this is a God moment. He knows something amazing is about to happen. They're going to hear something that's going to blow their mind. And from here, Peter proceeds then to really essentially preach the gospel. He essentially preaches the gospel, and, and look at the, how he begins it in verse 34 and 35, which really, these are the central verses to this whole story. It says this, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We think, oh yeah, no, duh, no kidding, but can you imagine the people in that room just going, what? What? No partiality? No favoritism? That's number two on your notes there. God shows no partiality or favoritism in granting to people the gift of repentance that leads to life through Jesus. This is what Peter is telling them. This had to be mind-boggling to them. And, and, and just crazy. Yet here's the thing, although God is impartial, Peter says that really there are two essential characteristics of a person whom God, who he says rewards as acceptable or welcome by him. And the first one, we looked at this a few weeks ago, it's the fear of the Lord. Number three on your notes. 
the fear of the Lord. And what this refers to, remember, is, is uh, perceiving God with a sense of reverence or awe. Not just saying, oh, I know God. Oh, yeah, sure, I, know. I know who God is. I've read, all, I've read all about him. No, it's seeing him as completely holy, just, and righteous. It goes beyond just simply respecting God. Oh, yeah, I'm a respect. I respect God. It's amazing. No, it means having a, such a reverence for God that it profoundly impacts the way that we think and the way we live our lives. And I've said this before. Remember, I've said this, that I think there's a lot of people that probably believe that they are followers of Jesus who are actually aren't. And that's not, I, I'm not one to judge them. I, I would never say who it is and who it is. But the reality is, if someone is going to call themselves a follower of Jesus, no, they're not going to be perfect. No, they're not going to do everything right. Sure, they are still going to sin. But what's going to happen is that, that knowledge and that understanding of who God is is going to cause them to think and act in ways that are different. We're going to recognize our sin and we're going to say, I see that as sin. I need the power, the resurrection power of God to help me with that or to invite other people to help me with this issue that I have in my life. It's when we say we know God and we ignore these things, there's a good chance that the relationship probably isn't there. There's a lot of head knowledge, a ton of head knowledge. I think the churches are full of people across the world especially in this country, that think they have a relationship with Jesus, but really don't. But they know a lot. We know a lot. So that's what, the fear, that's what the fear of the Lord is. And the other characteristic, though, of a person whom God rewards as acceptable or welcoming by him is, look, he said here, is someone who does right or someone doing what is right. He says. Now, that's an interesting thing that he says there, doing what is right, because we know that there's nothing that we can do that will deem us acceptable to God. We know that, right? We know we can't earn God's favor. Titus 3.5 says this, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what is Peter saying here? What is he saying that it's meant that do right, that do right things, deeds of righteousness? What's he talking about? Well, as with Cornelius, it wasn't his devotion to God shown by the godly ways that he led his family and the generous giving and the continual praying. These are not the things that made him acceptable to God. These things were, though, descriptive, or they were evidence, like I was saying, of his true devotion and his heart towards God. You see, number five on your notes there says, it's not our action, the actions that make us acceptable to God. Our right or righteous actions are the evidence of our being devoted to Jesus, therefore making us acceptable to God. I mean, you could do all you want. You could give all the money you want to give. You could do everything you want to do. You could go to church. You could go to every meeting. You can go to everything you want to do that you think, okay, that seems to be what God wants. That seems to me what's going to make him happy. No. Those are to be things that are evidence of a relationship with God, evidence of understanding his mercy, his grace, and forgiveness. That's powerful. Here's the, but, and here's the cool thing. It's the cool thing is that Cornelius, Cornelius' responsiveness or his devotion to God by fearing him and doing what was right, this is a really cool thing. It led to God sending Peter 
to do to reveal more to him. Remember it says, look at, remember that verse, it says that you, we have, God has heard you, God is remembering you, say, so he, I want you to know more about me. And that's number six on your notes there. The lesson for really for us, for you and me here, is complete dependence on and obedience to the Lord results in him revealing more of himself to us. The more we depend on him, the more we let him have control of our lives, the more we allow him to reign and to rule and to realize, I got to get off this throne. I can't do this. I want you, Jesus. I want more of you. The reaction of God to that is, you got it. <laughs> I'm going to reveal myself more. So often we think, why, don't I, why aren't I stronger in my faith? Why don't I know more? Why can't I walk by faith? So often it's because we haven't come to the, understand the very elementary principles of just giving ourselves over to God, to saying, I'm yours. It's all about you. It's not about me. And the more we do that, God says, great, I want to reveal myself even more to you. Not that God's saying, all right, come on, be better, then I'll reveal myself. No, he knows that as we give ourselves more and more to him, we're able to receive better more and more from him. And that's what was happening with Cornelius here. And the truth is, you guys, isn't that great motivation to be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord? Not because... He's going to take my problems away or he's going to make life easier for me. We're still going to trip and fall when we walk out of the sound booth and hurt our leg and, and, and things, are going, things are going to happen. Um, things, life is hard. Marriage is going to be tough. Kids are going to go astray. All these things are going to happen. We know that. But as we continue to allow God to have more of who we are, he reveals more of who he is. Does that make sense? That's how it works. Because we're opening ourselves up to understanding that truth and saying, oh, okay, and understanding how good and wonderful he is. Okay, we see that Peter, now he puts an exclamation point on his message in verse 30, 43 when he says, to him, Jesus, all the apostles bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Obviously, we know this. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is faith in Jesus is what brings forgiveness of sins. Not trying harder, not doing better, not sinning less. It's faith in Jesus. And this brings us to scene number Five, where we see that God is obviously at work in the hearts of those Peter, the people that are listening to Peter. Because before he even finishes, I imagine he's in mid-sentence, mid-word, mid-syllable probably. And look what happens in verse 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. <laughs> and you see, notice what happens here. The circumcised Jews, these Jews that came along with P Peter, um, were totally blown away by what they were seeing. What is happening? Okay, maybe God is including, maybe God's saying, okay, I want you. But what? wait, he's doing something that looks familiar to what happened a while ago. Remember? The day of Pentecost, remember that? He's doing it to them too. 
Wow, that is inclusion. These, those once regarded as excluded from God without hope have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues and they're magnifying God. What an amazing, crazy, confusing, wonderful, all of those wonderful emotions you can think of seen. It had to just be wild. Now, here's the thing. You would think that this news that the Gentiles being included into the family of God would lead to, the, lead to an immediate all-out celebration by the Jews, wouldn't you? They'd think they would hear that and they'd go, what? Oh, that's awesome. I don't care how it happened, what happened. But the truth is, as we're going to see in this next scene here, the reality is, and I believe this is, happens a lot of people, especially in a lot of churches, that old ways of thinking can die hard. And old ways of thinking can be, even when we, we thought they've died, come back again. Let's look what happens at the beginning of chapter 11. He says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had all received the word of God. So when Peter came to Jerusalem, the circumcised party was excited. They were ecstatic. They were so stoked that it happened. They criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men, and you ate with them? <laughs> Notice what the primary concern here is. What you did what? Instead of celebrating this news, their initial reaction is that they're bothered that Peter had fraternized with the Gentiles. You went and hung out with ate, and you ate with gentle Gentiles? Lucy, you have some splaining to do. I mean, <laughs> you better, what is going on here? Tell us what you were thinking. So Peter does what Cornelius does, basically. He recounts for the apostles and all the others all that had happened here in this vision, from going from the vision in Joppa to him sharing the gospel in Cornelius' house, when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came just like it had on the day of Pentecost. So he explains it all. Here's what's going on. And notice what happens here. Look at the reaction, finally, in verse 18. He says, when they heard these things... They fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance of life. Basically saying, all right then, the Gentiles are in. We're excited. The Gen that, now that makes sense. We see God's hand in all that. You see, God in, is inviting the Gentiles to partake in his gift of salvation through Jesus, something that Peter and now the other apostles of the church, they're now beginning to see. Nobody is seen more or less deserving of his grace and mercy. No one. Yet it's also, here's something that's really important to remember. I think we love to talk about God's inclusion. We love to talk about how God, he's accepting of everybody. But it's also important to remember that although God is impartial, God judges people all the same, just as, much, just as well. Romans 2 11 and 12 tells us that God shows no partiality or favoritism. It says, yet he will judge people by what they know to be true about him. Remember, just a little while back, Peter said this. He said, and he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, Jesus, to be judge of the living and the dead. Judge. He is to judge the living and the dead. This is verse 42. Along with being our impartial advocate, Jesus is also our impartial judge. The truth is, really, what comes to mind when I do all this is really two lies that the devil tries to get people to believe. Two big lies. 
The first one is that we're good enough. The first lie that he gets people is that they're good enough, that they don't need God's grace and mercy, that they don't need to repent of their sin in order to receive forgiveness and salvation. Have you ever talked to people and see people like that? They love the idea of being able to just believe that Jesus is on the cross and say, okay, I'm in. But the idea of repenting of our sin and needing Jesus to forgive of our sin, that's a whole other thing. It's easier to believe that since I'm a good person, I'm pretty good, and God, right, is a loving God, he's not going to hold me accountable to all the sins that I do. Really? Is God going to be, is he going to do that? He is. And we can spend a whole other time talking about how the wages of sin are death. And how sin separates us from God so much, even the smallest things. And he wants us to know our deep need for Jesus, our deep need that we can't take ourselves and make ourselves clean before him. Only Jesus can. Here's the other lie. The other lie that people tell themselves is that they're so bad that God's grace and mercy isn't enough to make them acceptable to God. I don't know if you've met anybody like that. I've talked to people like that before. Oh, you, you've heard that from, line from buddy? Oh, you don't know what my past is like. You don't know what I've done. I heard even Christians even say those kinds of things. The truth is, number seven on your notes, that Jesus will judge everyone with absolute fairness. Everybody with absolute fairness. And this means two things. The first thing is it means no one can escape the consequences of their sin just because they are a good person. Okay, I'm not, I know I'm not saying anything new to us, most of us in this room here, but this is important for us to remember, there's no personal privilege a person can invoke that will get them off the hook. Nothing. No breeding, no family you were born into, nothing. No whatever you've done. See, Cornelius, remember, he's described in this passage as a good person. He was righteous and devout. He feared God. He gave money to the poor. He prayed continually. But we see that that wasn't enough. He still needed the gospel. He still needed to repent. He still needed to be forgiven, and he needed to be saved. That's why God did what he did in order to get the message of Christ to him. Jesus judging everyone with absolute fairness, number eight, also means that anyone in the world can be forgiven. Anyone in the world can be forgiven. God judges everyone the same, the CEO, the philanthropist, the pope, the murderer, the rapist, the thief, the liar, the pastor, the priest, all the same. I think we've got this weird hierarchy thinking because that's how we think about famous people are up here or rich people are up here and other people are down here. God does not see it that way. All the same. That's because God is fair. No one is able to earn a good standing with God based on their own merit. Yet no one is ever excluded from God's mercy no matter who they are or no matter what they have done. Whoever believes in him will experience forgiveness and grace. Really, ultimately, it's not about who you are. It's about who you know. It's about who you know. I know Jesus. And not just about Jesus. I know Jesus. If we're going to, here's, 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 how, here's how I want to end this. Really, you guys, if we want to be the best witnesses for Christ 
that we can possibly be, we need to learn to see people like God sees people. We have to. We need to see them as created in his very image. We need to see them as desperately in need of Jesus, no matter who they are, where they've come from, what they have done, or what they haven't done, because that's the heart of our Father God. Now, help me to put some application to this. I've got a couple questions, because that doesn't answer at all. We can help each other out a little here. First question I want to throw out there to you guys. What are some, you got that first one up there? What are some assumptions, biases, or prejudices people carry that could keep them from associating with people with and ultimately sharing the gospel with someone? I'm sorry. What are some assumptions, biases, or prejudices people carry that could keep them from associating with and ultimately sharing the gospel with someone? What are some of those that are out there you've seen or heard or... from even just associating with certain people. Yes. Yes. Especially if we know a little bit about <laughs> them a little bit, kind of thing, maybe things they've said or different things like that. Yeah, big time. That person stands for this, so they're going to be like so anti uh, that's quite a bias. Any, what else? Yes. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, I don't have anything in common with them. If I don't have anything in common, then obviously, one, we're not going to have a relationship probably. Two, we're probably not going to get to the whole sharing faith and things like that. Yeah, for sure. What else? The Christian church is notorious for the us versus them mentality. Notorious. Yeah. Someone who's, yeah, someone who's hurt, they've hurt me in the past, so, yeah. I, mean, I think we can get into a lot of sociological things, too. I think there's a lot of things out there that we don't realize that we're biased towards. If you really were to dig into this, we could do a whole talk on how our biases and prejudices, and especially sort of different races and different culture, that we think, ah, no, I don't feel that way. When the truth is, when we've grown up a certain way, remember, we try to make sense of the world by categorizing. It's really what we do. It's natural. It's survival. So I think it's easy to anything, so anything else you can think, any other assumptions, these are good, these are great ones you shared, biases or prejudices we carry that could possibly keep us at arm's distance from people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that piggybacks on kind of what Lisa was saying. Yeah, you walk into a room and there's a CEO of this company and you know he's the CEO of the company. It's easy to go, I don't have anything in common with him. How could we relate? Uh, you're human. 
<laughs> but yeah, I get that. It's, it's perfectly easy to do that. Okay, next question then. How does seeing people as God sees them help to dictate how we feel about them and in turn how we respond to the Spirit's leading to share Christ with them? How does seeing people as God sees them help to dictate how we feel about them and in turn how we respond to the Spirit's leading to share Christ with them? What do you think? Yes, Paul. Okay, yeah. Compassion. Yeah, seeing them as lost. Yeah. You ever been around someone and you know they don't know Jesus and your heart just breaks because you know that they don't know what you know and you wish they did? That's, that's the heart of God. What else? Anything else you can think of? William Law used to uh, imagine when he sees somebody that that person was encased in a, a box. A box that was constructed originally from a cross and that box represented the love of God that surrounded that person. Hmm. Wow, that's wild. Can you imagine? Yeah, can you imagine if we saw we, everybody we run into, God, Jesus died for them. Jesus died for them. Yeah. Put aside all our theology about predestination and all that stuff. Just Jesus died for them. Jesus died for them. That CEO in that corner, that dude sleeping on a sleeping bag outside. I mean, cha- changes our mentality a little bit, doesn't it? We still, though, approach it with, we still approach it with us and them, but these are the things that um, can help. Okay, and, then that's the, and that really goes into the last question, which is a lot like this one. What are some things we can do? What are some practical things we can do that help us to see others as God sees them? You already started doing, kind of doing that. What are anything else practically you can think of that would help us to see others as God sees them? Ask them for help. Yeah. What else? Pray that uh, God would give you the heart to see. Yeah. And when he opens the opportunities, don't let fear stop you. Good. Exactly. Yes. God, yeah, we, we like to pray that. <laughs> but then God opens that door and it's like, oh, whoa, really? <laughs> that's, a little, that's a little tough. Yeah, good. What, what else? What else can we do that something that we can do that, that would help us to see others as God sees us, sees them? Yeah, Sue. I just like look ahead Monday and be like, Yeah. And that's a great and that leads to a great thing, the whole idea of, first of all, we don't we aren't gonna be able to see people like like a person as God does unless we know that person. Or at least, at least we spend some time with that person. Have you ever thought of spending time with someone that is completely, totally different than you? Usually we don't. Usually we gravitate towards who we like to be with, right? Or who it makes sense to be with them. You want to stretch yourself? I want to stretch myself? One thing to do is maybe be with people. Maybe you might not have them on your calendar like Sue has a, has a meeting with them. But maybe it would say, you know what? I want to understand the heart of God better. 
I want to understand what it's like to God, that God really loves people that are different than kind of the people I would normally hang out with. So I'm going to go ask if I could go out to lunch with so-and-so or spend time with so-and-so and just hear their story. I think that that would change us a lot. To spend time with someone, that, like, I, I, don't, I don't get, they're of a different race, a different culture, totally different mindset. They vote completely different than I do. And say, so I'm going to go hang out with them. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote from Abraham Lincoln who said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. <laughs> That's so good. Exactly. Exactly. Now, and we're not going to be doing that all the time, but I think when, we're, when the Spirit, like when you say, when the Spirit of God moves our heart to do something that seems really outside of the box, like what Peter's was really outside of the box, move, go, go, or, or ask someone to help me to go. <laughs> yeah, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it saying, oh, look at they're like that, or, or they're different, or they're like that, or categorize someone as they're this way. Automatically, what I've done is I've put a wall up. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, another great reason, yeah, to be in God's word. Exactly. I was reading through the epistles for a while, Paul's epistles, and I was constantly blown away by, you think of Paul, Paul, and his, he oozed love. I mean, he just, he just, it just came out of every pore of his. Everything he said was out of love, love, love. And I was like, I don't love like that. So yeah, the word is good. Awesome. Good, you guys. Thank you for that. Now, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And as we do that, as, we, as you come up and as you take the communion, as you, um, you can take the communion up here. You can take it back to your seat. Uh, we'll have, I believe, Scott and Michelle will be over here and maybe Wayne over here to pray, get someone to, to pray with you. This is a great time for even by yourself maybe to confess. Confess those biases, those prejudices, those things that have maybe kept you from associating with others or even having a love for others that think differently. We live in such a divided nation right now, such a divided nation in so many ways. What are we going to do as followers of Jesus to break down those walls of reconciliation and the love of Christ for those that we just think are so different from us. Father God, thank you that your word is so strong and so powerful and so convicting. I confess, God, my own biases and my own prejudices that I know that, that constantly raise their head up in my own life as well, that keep me from loving and praying for and pursuing others. I pray, God, that as we partake of the the body and the blood of Christ that is an example here in communion, that you would do a work in our hearts, remind us of what the love of Christ is all about, because we remember that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took this bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is the, this is the blood of the new covenant that is given for you. Do this every time you do it in remembrance of me. So God, we remember your love for us, your love for all people. Help us, God, to love 
as you love. In Christ's name, amen.